Good morning, guys. So good to be with you. Hope you're enjoying your breakfast and the fellowship around these tables. I got to tell you, I got to confess, I didn't really sing while you were singing. Um, (laughs) I'm not a good singer, but uh, it was a delight hearing you met and pray and sing aloud. And what a beautiful vision it is, because one day we will be for the throne of grace singing that together. And it's a delight. And I encourage you, every now and again, don't sing on Amen mornings and hear your brothers sing, because it really takes you to the throne of grace. I invite you to open up your Bibles to uh, Exodus 33. We'll talk to that. We'll, we'll talk about this in a second, Exodus 33, but prayer. According to the Westminster Confession of Faith, prayer is a means of grace through which the Spirit works in our lives. Prayer is this great gift that God gives His people that we might be in communion with Him. Not a means to grace. We don't earn grace through prayer, but it's a means of experiencing His grace. It's a gift through which the Holy Spirit works in our lives. I was researching this, and one of my favorite pastors, scholars, authors is James Montgomery Boyce. I'm not sure if you know much about him. But he has this wonderful systematic theology. It's about this thick. It's called Foundations of the Christian Life. And he has a great article on prayer. And he summarizes, he harvests from the Bible all of the reasons that this means of grace is of vital importance for men after God's own heart like us. And I want want to read those to you. There's nine things that he says. He says, prayers of the utmost importance because one, there is a devil and because prayer is God's appointed means of resisting Him. Two, prayer is God's way for us to obtain what we need from Him. It's this mechanism which He gives us to bless us through this, this gift of prayer, namely, mercy and grace. Thirdly, because the apostles whom God gave us as a pattern considered prayer to be their most important business in their ministry, prayer. Fourthly, because prayer occupied a very prominent place and played a very important role in the earthly life of Jesus. And we see that in the Gospels. Fifthly, because prayer is the most important part of the present ministry of Jesus as our great high priest who is currently interceding on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 7. Six, because prayer is the means of obtaining the fullness of God's joy. It's this gift that He gives us in which we're able to commune with Him, the one true and living God. Seven, because prayer with thanksgiving, we see this in Philippians 4, is the means of obtaining freedom from anxiety. It's the means by which we draw near to the Lord and cast all of our cares and concerns upon His lap, whatever they might be. Verse 8, or uh, reason 8. Because prayer is used by God to promote our spiritual growth to bring power into our work and to lead others to faith in Christ and to bring all their blessings to Christ's church. God could do that on His own. But for some reason, He has ordained it, given us the dignity of causality, of using our prayers to fulfill His purposes. Ninth, because as His kingdom of priests, prayers are chief duty as we seek first His kingdom, laboring to make earth as it is in heaven. For these reasons, every generation of the church needs to be challenged to make prayer a priority. 
Because ultimately, a prayerless Christian is a powerless one. I think all of us would agree with that. I know that we would. But nevertheless, prayer and the ministry of prayer is not always easy. And we know that to be true as well. You know, for, you know, for example, Todd told us this last week or the week before. As Christians, we know that God will receive us no matter what, that we can bring him whatever is on our mind and on our plate. But sometimes it's hard to pray in accordance with God's will. What does that mean? Oftentimes we, we struggle to make time for prayer. Most of the times our prayer is at the end of the day when we're exhausted and stressed out from whatever happened and we fall asleep in midstream or our prayers are just this mindless garble. Now we know that the Holy Spirit interprets our prayers, but, but sometimes we just don't make the time to actually pray intelligently and thoughtfully. Sometimes prayer is frustrating. Perhaps we're not seeing God answer our prayers or answer Him in the way that we want Him to pray, or maybe just the act itself of praying is frustrating. And I just got to confess to you, as a father of young kids, family prayer is often frustrating. Um, earlier this week, I got a six-year-old kid, almost six, and one of my duties and joys is teaching him the Bible and teaching them, first and foremost, how to pray. And of course, if you've had a six-year-old, you know they're just little monsters. You know, <laughs> They don't pay attention. They're little goofballs, and, and I know that. And trying to teach him to pray, okay, Eli, settle down, let's pray. And, and he knows how to push my buttons, and he does it. And I'm telling you, th earlier this week, I just blew it. I mean, seriously, I yelled in the middle of prayer. It's like, stop it! And he just looks at me like a deer in a headlight. So I'm like, uh, so let me tell you about God's grace. <laughs> you know, what do you want to pray for? Just completely ruin the tenor and the purpose of prayer. So it can be frustrating. And of course, Todd said last week too that we just live in an age of the church where most Christians don't understand the reasons of prayer, especially as Reformed people. God's in charge. Why do we pray? Much less the urgency of prayer. So we know it's a means of grace. We know it's this gift that God gives us, right? But, but oftentimes we struggle with the how to pray, the what to pray, and certainly the, the urgency of prayer. That's why, and I was just telling Rob earlier, that studying this passage and really from all the things that Todd has said so far, I need this series. It's so convicting. It's so informative. Because I think really the, the best way to learn prayer, how to pray, what to pray, the urgency of prayer, is listening in on some of the great prayers of Scripture. And Moses in Exodus 3 is one such example. Now, if you've read Exodus chapter 33 before, you know this prayer is a doozy. <laughs> some of the things that Moses, in fact, Tim Keller says, this is one of the most audacious and astounding passages you'll ever read. And I have to agree with him. Now, to understand why, we got to understand a little bit of a context before we dive into Exodus 33. Just a brief overview. You remember in Genesis, God rescues Abraham out of darkness and says, Abraham, you're going to be my guy. Um, through you and your posterity, I'm going to make your name great. You're going to have a great number of, of descendants, more than you could ever possibly dream or count. I'm going to bring you into this promised land that's not yours. I'm going to provide it for you. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And through you and your posterity, your, your seed, I'm going to bless the world. Come into Exodus, God fulfills that promise. He hears the cries of Israel. He rescues them from darkness. He rescues them from the land of slavery, the house of Egypt, and he makes them his people. And through the mediation of Moses, he enters into a covenant with these people, and they're described as a holy nation, his kingdom of priests. And what's more, he promised to tabernacle with them 
to make his presence descend in their midst, to, to be with them, where among other things, vindicates them as actually being the people of God. Tremendous, tremendous blessings, what we see in Genesis and Exodus. All the while, Moses is up on the mountain talking with God about these things, even getting the instructions of how to fashion together this tabernacle. Here are these morons on the ground, growing impatient, fashioning together a golden calf and worshiping it. And when God sees that, he tells Moses, I'm done. I take back all the things in which I said, my wrath is burning against them. I'm going to bring judgment down upon them, and deservedly so. But here's Moses as the mediator of God's covenant. In chapter 32, he intervenes and prays for God's mercy. And astoundingly, God answers him. Because I will have mercy. But as you come into chapter 33, we're about to read, we see that all still is not well in this relationship between God and his people. So again, Moses intervenes a second time. That's what we're going to be talking about, that second intervention. And what he prays for is mercy and his grace, but, but really what he prays for is nothing less than a revival with God's people. Now here's the deal. This isn't a, just a, a straightforward copy and paste from Moses. We're not mediators of God's covenant. We're not. In fact, Moses is just a shadow of the greater mediator to come, of the greater covenant, the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the deal. As those who are in Jesus, united to Jesus, Peter tells us that you and I have been made a kingdom of priests where our chief duty, again, is to intercess not only for ourselves, but certainly on behalf of the church and God's people. And I don't know about you, but one of the things that we ought to be praying for is a revival in this day and age. So as we come to this passage, yes, we see this model, a beautiful model of how to pray and what to pray, but ultimately we're pointed to the greater Moses, Jesus, who himself is the answer to everything Moses prays for in chapter 33. So let's read it together, starting in verse 1. We're going to pay most attention to verses 12 through 23, but for context, we need these first 11 verses. Hear the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, and the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to that land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Let me push a pause right there. So, so he says prior to this, okay, I'm not going to wipe your people off the face of the planet, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the promised land, but I'm not going with you. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people, and if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments and that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to that tent of meeting which was outside the camp. Whatever Moses went out to, to the tent, all the people would rise up 
And each would stand at his own tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered that tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw that pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, uh, would not depart from the tent. Now here's where we're going to spend most of our time, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and I have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest, that is the rest of his presence. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take uh, away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen." Flip over to Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 5. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for our brothers. I'm so grateful for this time that you've given us all to come um, as friends, as family in your family as brothers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you'd send your spirit down upon us, that you would open up our eyes and our hearts, that we wouldn't merely be informed by your word, but transformed by it, that we would see Christ high and lifted up. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so that's the problem, if you noticed. God is going to withhold his presence. That why, that, that's why all is not well with the people of God and God. God is withholding his presence. He goes, Moses, I'm not going to destroy you but I'm not going to go with you. And so the problem was the people of God just found out that they cannot possibly live with God, but they know down deep in their bones and their heart they can't possibly live without God. So what are they going to do? Moses understood that, and so he prayed. And what he prayed for, again, is a revival. 
And before we get to really the nitty-gritty of the exact things that he prays for, I first want us to know how Moses prays. We see it in verse 13, and it serves as a model for how we ought to pray as Christians, but certainly as his kingdom of priests, given the ministry of intercession. And how does Moses pray? Before he begins saying all these things, God, please answer me in these, how does he begin his prayer? We see it in verse 13. First off, he prays according to the promises of God. Now, I know Todd talked about that at great length last week. I mean, I think his first two points were in the vein of praying according to the promises of God. So we're not going to belabor this, but this is how Moses starts. Right? So I think it's important that we take note of this. So before he starts praying for all these things, in verse 13, he first reminds God of two things. Look at verse 13. First off, he reminds God the favor that God had already given him as the covenant mediator. He says, God, you know me. You've given me your favor. Remember that. Secondly, he reminds God, too, that these people aren't really Moses' people. He says, God, I didn't choose these guys. You did. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Jew. I'm a part of them, but I didn't choose them. You chose me and you chose them. So what's Moses doing? Before he begins praying, he bases his prayer and what God has already revealed, his sovereign choice of both Moses himself and the people of God. So do you see what, this is our model. This is what Moses is doing. Moses is praying from grace to grace. He, he is approaching God, not based off his own merit, but rather by God's sovereign grace, his choice of both Moses and Israel. That's why he approaches God. That's how he approaches God. And the things he prays is in accordance with God's revealed will. Basically, he's summarizing, God, you chose us out of the world to bless the world. Now, how are we going to be any different from the world if, if you're not going to go with us? So he's praying according to the revealed will of God. He's resting in the grace of God and praying according to the revealed will of God. Now, another thing we have to say, and again, Todd said this last week, by reminding God of these things, Moses is not... He's not pretending that God had forgotten these things. Like he's a forgetful Nelly. That's, that's not what's happening here. I mean, Moses knows full well that God knows these things. And so why in the world is he reminding God? Why do we have that language? This is how John Calvin explains it. He says that God is forcing Moses to dig up his treasures, to dig up the treasures of God, to, basically to remind himself of these things in which God has promised forcing Moses to rest in those things and pray according to them. So in other words, what's happening here is that God is forcing Moses. He's drawing Moses closer and closer and closer to himself, reminding Moses of three things. First off, this whole relationship is based off grace, not his own merit, not his own spiritual inclinations or ideas, right? But because of God's grace. Secondly, these guys need God's grace. And thirdly, most importantly, God is the provision of grace. So he's forcing Moses to himself. He's praying from grace to grace, resting in God's promises, praying according to God's revealed will. We see that in verse 13. Now, what do we take from that? I think there's two things. First off, as believers, as Christians, we must be praying in Jesus' name. And I know that's what Todd said last week or the week before. I can't remember. But it bears reference. We're praying in Jesus' name. Now, we, we, we were taught this as kids. 
praying in Jesus, dun, 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 in Jesus' name, amen. We do that here at Big Church. I still call it Big Church on Sunday mornings. We pray in Jesus' name. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're not pretending like there's some magical words, like if we say the right thing, we can force God to do whatever we want him to do. That's not what in Jesus' name means. This is what Jesus' name means when we pray in it. It's basically for our benefit. It's a summary. It's, it's a shorthand reminder for us basing our prayers and even our approach in prayer on God's promises. In other words, when we go to the Father in Jesus' name, we are going, we're, we're going in full recognition, full cognizant brain function, that when we go to the Father in Jesus' name, we are not being received or heard based off our merit or even our own spiritual agenda but rather we're being received and heard based on the costly grace of Christ in which we stand, and that's it. Jesus has made a way for us. Jesus has made the way. He's the one who, is, who has opened up the throne rooms so that we may approach the throne of grace. Christ, prayer, praying is a Christian enterprise. It is impossible without Christ. Jesus has made the way. He's the one who interprets our prayers. He's the one who even redeems our prayers. We go to the Father not in our own name or not in our own will, but by in Jesus's name, in the costly grace in which we stand. So we're recognizing that it's for our benefit. Having that 30,000 foot view, that, that framework, okay, in Jesus' name. I'm not approaching the Father based off who I am or what I've done, but because of what Christ has done and who has made me. So I'm going to my Father in his name. Secondly, when we go to the Father in Christ's name, we go boldly. We go boldly. If you're listening, Exodus 33 is an extremely bold prayer made by Moses. Moses did not have the relationship with the Lord that we do. And we're going to talk about that in a second, our privileged position. But brothers, as those who are in Jesus Christ, we can go boldly to the throne of grace too. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 tells us this. The writer says, We have a great high priest in heaven, one who can sympathize with us in our weakness. Our mediator, our high priest, is not Moses. <laughs> it, is, it is the Son of God. And he can sympathize with us in our weakness. And then in verse 16, somebody says, let us then draw near because of who Christ is and our relationship, to, our relationship to him. Let us then draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. And Jesus said himself in John chapter 14, verse 13, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Now, Jesus is not saying that we can pray for any foolish or sinful thing that we want and tag his name on the end and he's going to do it. But it does mean that whenever we pray in accordance with his will, we can be confident that he hears us. The Apostle John says the same thing in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, when he says, this is our confidence, this is our boldness towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Why? Because we're praying according to his revealed will. That is, we're praying those things that, that God cares about, that God desires, that he delights in when we pray according to the scriptures. I mean, my goodness, you know, all of us who are married or dating someone or in an engaged relationship, I mean, there are times that our significant others, you know, they really just want us to figure it out, you know, to make sure that we've been paying attention you know, for example, today is my 10-year anniversary, 10 years. 
And I know that my wife loves, thank you, gentlemen, thank you. And I know my wife loves flowers. For the life of me, I really can't remember what kind of flowers. So I went for it yesterday. I ordered some at a garden district. And we'll see if they're the right flowers later today when I bring them home to her. And so you can be praying for me. This is going to be interesting. But isn't it amazing in our marriage with God, in our romance with him, our life with him, he doesn't say, Barton, I want you to figure it out. You should, be, you should have been paying attention. He didn't do that. He tells us what pleases him. He tells us what he desires. He gives us his list, his word. And so, brothers, we can pray anything. We're God's people. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to throw ourselves on his mercy lap and pray. But if you want to be an effective prayer, pray those things in which he delights. That's what Moses does here. He prays for three things in which God delights in that he wants to answer for his people. Three things that, as intercessors, we ought to be praying for ourselves, our families, our church, and the people of God. Three things that reveal to us what we most need as God's people and what God most desires for us. So three things. First off, pray for God's friendship. We see this in verse 13. Notice what Moses says. He says, You have said, God, that you know my name and have given me favor. Again, he's reminding God, basing his prayers in the promises of God. And this is his first request. He says, if I have found favor, show me your ways so that I might know you. Isn't that amazing? That, that says the first, I mean, they are in, they're in trouble. And the first thing that he prays, God, show me your ways. Show me your ways that I may know you. What's he praying for? Just as God knows Moses, that's the promise that he's remembering. Just as God knows Moses, right, and is in relationship with Moses, is a friend to Moses, knows Moses, is by, knows Moses inside and out, Moses is saying, God, I want to know you in the way in which you know me. I want to know you inside and out. That's what Moses is praying for. Not just in a theoretical or theological way. Anybody can know God theoretically or theologically. He's saying, God, I want to know you personally and intimately. I want to know you inside and out as you know me. Now, if you think about it, that's astounding. It's astounding. Because think about what's happened to Moses up until this point. He's had profound experiences with God. He has not seen God face-to-face -face in the way in which we will see God face-to-face -face in the new heavens and the new earth, right? Because God's glory has been veiled, but he's seen shapes of God's glory. They're called theophanies. He, he, the burning bush. I mean, he experienced that. He's heard the stories from the ancestors of God's people all the way back in Genesis of, of what God was like. He's seen God do tremendous things. I mean, most, most notably rescuing Israel from from Egypt in miraculous ways. And he's been talking with God in this tent of meeting. But his greatest desire, his hunger, God, I want to know you more. Specifically his character, the scholars tell us. Now, why does he want to know more of God's character? Well, again, Israel's in a lot of trouble. They committed high treason against God. And yes, God has withheld his full judgment. But Moses knows that this covenant relationship is still broken. And Moses has been called to be the leader of these people. He goes, God, I can't do this without you. Are you going to repair this relationship? Are you going to make things right? I mean, I know you're holy, 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 holy. I know you're holy, but, but I know these are your people. What are you going to do? 
Show me your character. Now, God's going to answer this very powerfully, which we just read in Exodus 34. But don't skim over the main point. Moses is praying to know God more than he already knows him. And I think that right there is a major indictment to anybody who's ever said, you know what, I've heard that sermon before. You, know, you look at the bulletin on Thursday, you get it. it says, ah, the preacher's preaching on Philippians 2. I've heard, I'm going to sit this Sunday out as if you know everything there is to know about that particular text. You know? Or you're having your own Bible studies. Like, ah, no, my Bible study leader, he's, he's talking through Colossians 1. I, I've read that before. I, I'm not going to go. Or, no, 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 I don't need to hear about this, this theological topic. I remember back in Sunday school when I was a kid, Andrew Kiesling told me everything there was to know about adoption and our adoption into God's family. I don't, I don't need that. As if we've reached to the end of our relationship with God and we have them all figured out. Moses, <laughs> Moses was not like that. Moses had profound experiences, but his knowledge and thirst for God was never satiated. I want to know God more. I want to know him more. I want to know him inside and out. Brothers, is our desire to know God satiated? Have we gotten to the place like, ah, I don't need any more. I don't need to know any more than I already do. May that never be the case for us, for our families, for our churches. Listen to what J.R. Packer says. He says, the very reason we were made is to know God and to be known by God. So imagine, perhaps you have been acquainted with the Bible and Christian truth for, for many years and it meant very little to you. But one day you woke up to the fact that God is actually speaking to you, you, through the biblical message and you come to realize that as you listen, that God is actually opening his heart to you, making friends with you, enlisting you as his covenant partner. He says, let that always be a staggering thing. Because, brothers, it is a staggering thing. May our, one of our chief prayers for ourselves and for our family, our kids, our relatives, our churches be, God, I want to know you. Right, Because to know God, not about God, but of God, is to be in a relationship with God. And to grow in your knowledge of God is to grow into your intimacy with him. That is what we were made for. That, 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 and God loves to answer that prayer. In fact, Jeremiah says it's the most important thing. Jeremiah chapter 9. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Let that be our prayer. Secondly, Moses prays for God's presence in verses 13 through 17. This is the main point of emphasis because remember the context. God has promised to tabernacle with Israel. He has promised to cause his, his uh, glory to descend in their midst. And that meant an assortment of things. First off, it meant that they were vindicated as the actual people of God. They were distinct from everybody else. But it was also this incredible worship experience that they could draw near to the Lord and know that the Lord was with them. It was incredible, right? And even as God is giving Moses the instructions to how to make the tabernacle, the people of God were rebelling against God, and God says, no, no, never mind. We can't do this anymore, Moses. Then those first 11, verse, uh, first 11 verses of chapter 33, which we didn't really talk about, it shows us what's at stake with this. It's kind of like a movie. As God is telling Moses this bad news, he remembers in those first 11 verses what God's presence had been like. And he starts remembering, as God's talking, he's remembering. It's like, oh man, I used to be able to have meetings with God. 
the rest of Israel is able to draw near to God in this tent of meeting. In fact, it was so beautiful, so amazing, that even when I went in and they saw the glory of God descend, they broke out in worship. It, it was that intimate, that amazing, and God says, that's going away. And then God says this, but Moses, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm still going to give you the land. I'm still going to give you all the things that I promised Abraham. I'm going to give you a land that wasn't yours. It's flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to take out all the bad guys. I'm going to send an angel in there to take out all the bad guys. You're going to be a, a, a mighty power militarily and economically. You're going to be wealthy. You're just not going to get me. And that was Moses' problem. That was his concern. But brothers, let's just ask the question, why is that a concern? Because this is what God is saying. I'm going to give you everything the world has. I'm going to give you military might. You're not going to have to worry about anybody messing with you. I'm going to give you all the wealth that you could possibly imagine. I'm going to give you this land that everybody dreams about. But you're not going to give me. Most people in this world would say, that's a pretty good idea. They would say, are you, tell are you telling me? That I'm going to get all the blessings of heaven and I don't have to worry about this accountability relationship with the, with, with the God of the universe? Sign me up. That sounds amazing. But Moses says, no, I'll, I'll have none of that. Are you kidding me? And I'm sure if some of Moses' lieutenants were in earshot with this conversation, they would have said, Moses, let's think about this. This is a good deal. But Moses said, no. In fact, God, you can keep your blessings. You can keep the land, you can keep the wealth, you can keep the power, because if you're not there, none of that matters anyway. I mean, think about how astounding that is. He is, he is. he is refusing God's blessings, Moses, because he knows that the promises of God, without the God who promises them, it doesn't matter. Moses has been there before. He was the prince of Egypt. He, he, I mean, he, he's already had all these things, and he goes, guys, this isn't what we need. We don't need stuff. We need God's presence. His loving presence in the center of our lives, that is what we need. Does that challenge you? It certainly challenges me. I mean, I repented thinking about that. I mean, the things that I often pray for. But what Moses is showing us here, as, as the people of God, we have been promised something infinitely more precious than heaven itself. We've been promised God. And that's what Paul says in Romans 8. As those who are in Jesus, we are heirs of God. <laughs> We're going to inherit his presence one day. And as I was studying that and thinking about that, my goodness, it challenged the prayers I pray for my kids at nighttime. I'm a dad. I love my kids. I want, I want them to, to grow in stature. I want them to, to grow intellectually and physically. I want them to grow emotionally. I want them to grow socially. I mean, this life is all about who you know, and I want them to be able to navigate life well and to make friends and to find a spouse. I want those things for them. But Moses is saying, don't you dare make those your first prayer because those things don't matter. What matters is God's loving presence in the center of your life because without God, brothers, we have nothing and we are nothing. God is our glory. He is what makes us matter. And that's what, that's what Moses is saying. If you're not going with us, what's going to distinguish us from everybody who doesn't already know you? You're, you and your presence, your loving presence is what matters. And what's amazing is God answers them and says, you got it, Moses. 
I'm going to go with you. Because these are the type of prayers that God loves to answer. But Moses doesn't stop there. He gets even more audacious. <laughs> the third thing that he prays for is incredible. What's even more incredible is how God answers it. The third and last thing that he prays for is God's glory. This is more than asking for God's tabernacling presence. Because remember, in the tabernacle, God's presence is veiled. It's shaded. But what Moses is asking here is he's asking for more. He's saying, God, I want to see you face to face. That's what he means when he says, I want to see your glory. I want to see you with no veil. I want to see you face to face. Now, I really relied on Tim Keller for this last point. And so this little block quote from Tim. He says, what is Moses asking for? He says, when you see God's love, you know that you need God's love. He says, when you see God's power, you know you need it because you realize I'm a weak person. I need the Lord's strength. When you see his power, you know you need it. When you see his wisdom, you know that you need it because you're an unwise person. You need his counsel. You need his wisdom. He says, in the best way possible, in those ways, God is nothing more than a means to an end. Now, we know that we need his love. He knows that we need his love, and he is happy to give it. But to see God's glory is more. To see God's glory is to be smitten with his beauty. And to find God beautiful, not just useful, is to find him satisfying for who he is in himself, is to worship him simply because he's God, not for what you get from him. And Moses is saying, God, I want to see your glory. That's the experience that he longs for. He wants to be smitten with the glory and the beauty of God. Now, to find something beautiful, we talk about this in our fellows class this semester, beauty and art and all that stuff. Most philosophers say to find something beautiful, truly beautiful, there's two things that are happening. The first thing that's happening is that you have pleasure directed at an object without any care of its utility. So if you go into an art museum and you see this gorgeous piece of work, and you're, you know, it's not useful to you. It's not going to help you make money. But you're looking at it, you're like, my goodness, that's gorgeous. It just blows your mind how beautiful it is. Or if you're not into art, maybe you're out fishing or hunting or, or driving through the, the mountains in East Tennessee and the, the mountain peaks. Or, or maybe you're an astrophotographer and you're, and you're looking into the night sky through your telescope. And whatever it is, just something just mesmerizes you. It's not useful to you. It itself is just gorgeous. And that experience, secondly, they say, gives you this immediate sense of fullness and meaningfulness, that somehow this beautiful thing just transports you out of yourself. And you either realize how small you are or how much you matter or whatever. It just brings meaning. Now, Tim says Moses is understanding that most people approach God needing something. That's how most people approach God. God, I'm having a hard time at work. This needs to happen. Or my kids are going through this. This needs to happen. I'm sick. This needs to happen. But what Moses is saying, what would it be like to actually just have an experience of God's beauty regardless if he answers your prayers or not? Just to be mesmerized by how glorious and grand and perfect that he is. Just to be in his presence, enjoying him for who he is. Because it's only with him and before him that our deepest longings of the human soul could ever be met. Because because you see God looking back at you in love. And you realize, I matter to God. This is the experience that Moses prays for, and this is how God answers it. No. <laughs> That's what he says. 
Now, thankfully, that's not all he says. Right? If God had just told Moses, no, you can't see my glory, and no one will ever be able to see my glory, we don't have much to talk about this morning. But notice that God makes a way. And in this way, to answer Moses' prayer, we see the gospel. God answers prayers, uh, uh, Moses' prayer. Notice what God says. He says, Moses, I can't show you the fullness of my glory, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock. I'll put my hand over you, and you'll see parts of my glory. You'll see my back parts, which is strange. But the significant part of this is this word change that God makes. Moses says, God, I want to see the fullness of your glory. God says, no, you can't, but I will show you the back parts of it. I'm going to show you my goodness. Moses asks to see God's glory. God says, nope, but I'm going to show you my goodness. Then in Exodus 34, in verses 5 through 7, he shows Moses his goodness in verbal form. And in summary, this is what God says. Moses, I'm infinitely loving. I'm going to forgive your sin and the people's sin, because I know that's what you are really concerned with, my character. I'm going to forgive sin. But Moses, I'm never going to let sin go unpunished either, because I'm infinitely holy. Seems like a contradiction right there. I'm infinitely loving, but I'm also infinitely holy, and I'm going to forgive sin, but I'm not going to forgive sin. And and it seems like a contradiction, but it's not. It's a tension. And God says the only way to understand that tension is by what I'm describing it as, and it's my goodness. This is, he says, Moses, this is what you wanted to see. I'm going to show you the complexity of my goodness. And so, for example... Why can't God let sin go unpunished? Because he's too good. He's just. Why can't God let his people be lost? Because he's too good in the sense of his love. Because Moses, that tension right there, that is my beauty, that is my glory, that is my goodness. Now Moses must have been confused as all get out. After all, he just saw the back parts of this. He didn't understand it in full. He only saw it in part. But notice, it was enough to cause him to fall to his knees and to worship God. This really strange understanding of God's glory and understanding his goodness and the complexity of it was enough to give him the greatest worship experience he's ever had in his life and the greatest assurance that he needed that God would go with his people. But brothers, you understand how much greater that we have this because what Moses only saw in part and partly understood, we can now fully understand. And this is really what we get from Exodus 33, that all of the prayers of Moses in this passage are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. First off, through his death and resurrection, uh, Jesus has made us friends with God. Not just servants, we are friends. Notice what Paul says in Romans 5, 9 through 11. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That means that that divide between us and God has been removed. Christ has fixed it. He has filled it. We have been made friends with God. Those things that, that Moses was longing for, desperate to know, God answers it in the Lord Jesus, and we have been reconciled. You are a friend of the living God. A friend of Jesus is the friend of sinners. You have an intimate relationship with him. Secondly, in Jesus, we have God's presence. And remember how important presence is. It means everything. In Matthew chapter 1, Emmanuel, God with us, that's who Jesus is. 
He's the Son of God that took on flesh to draw near to you and me, undeserving people. And even though He ascended to be with His Father, we are told in the Gospel accounts that He would send His Counselor, the Holy Spirit, who would always be with us, testifying to us about the Lord Jesus. Paul describes it as the spirit of adoption, that you've been adopted into the family of God, united together forever with the Lord Jesus Christ, where you're now an heir of God. I mean, brothers, Moses could not have dreamt about the relationship and the privileges that we have in the Lord Jesus. He couldn't have imagined it. And you have that. And furthermore, Jesus himself promises to be with us to the end of the age, now and always, in Matthew 28, verse 20. We have his friendship, we have his presence, but brothers, in Jesus we have seen the fullness of God's glory. In John chapter 1, it says that Jesus became flesh, and in verse 14, in the Greek, literally says that Jesus tabernacled with us. John is deliberately invoking Exodus 33, when he says, the word became flesh, tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. What Moses only saw in part, we see in full in the Lord Jesus Christ. How is that possible? Where do we see the infinite love and infinite holiness of God, where do we see his goodness and glory? Brothers, we see it in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the fullness of his goodness in terms of justice because all of our sin was punished at the cross. And we see the fullness of his goodness and love is because God himself absorbed it. And therefore, every time you look at the cross, every time you look at the gospel, you only see, you see what Moses only saw in part. You see the fullness of God's glory. You see the fullness of his love, the fullness of his goodness, and the fullness of his beauty. What Moses longed to see, you see in the face of God, looking at you in the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, I told you that I was going to make a way. I love you. And you matter to me. Moses longed to see that. And we see that fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, what now? I love what Paul says. What now? Every time we go to the scriptures, we see the glory of Jesus, the glory of God, his goodness over and over and over again. And it changes us. It transforms us. It's a life-transforming vision. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we gaze into the glory of Christ, we are being changed day by day, and that's happening right now. As we study God's word, we see the fullness of God's glory and the Lord Jesus Christ and that spirit that he gave us, his presence day by day is transforming us into his image. And as you, by grace in the spirit, when you do that, it just feels like the satisfaction of being fed the bread of heaven, not even realizing that you were starving for it. Every time you go to God's word, he's feeding you, he's changing you and transforming you. But that's not even the half of it because the apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are kids of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But when he appears and we shall see him face to face, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That beatific vision, that vision that God told Moses, you can't see it. That day's coming when we look in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and you see his love for you and you hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Can you imagine, imagine what that day is going to be like? 
that day's promised to you. These are the things we pray for. Pray for the friendship of God that we grow in intimacy with Him. Pray for His presence. Pray for His presence in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of this church. And Oh, brothers, pray for the glory of God, longing to see that day when He returns and makes all things new, when we see Him face to face. Again, we're not Moses, but as those who are in Jesus Christ, we have seen the fulfillment of all of Moses' prayers. The high King of heaven, our great high priest, and day by day, he urges us to draw near to the throne of grace, not only to make our petitions known as his prayers intercessors in his kingdom of priests, but to be reminded day by day again and again that Jesus himself is our great reward. Let us pray these things, brothers. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gospel of Jesus because as Moses and the people of God in Exodus 33 knew full well, we are undeserving of you. But in your grace, you have entered into our lives. You have transformed us by the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel. Father, let us never grow tired of that. Help us to go back to it day by day, again and again, knowing that we have full access to your throne of grace and that all of the prayers of Moses are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus, our Savior. We pray in his blessed name. Amen.